poetry or good literature is an invitation, an invitation into a, a deeper relationship with life, a, a deeper reflection on the meaning of one's life, on what one is caring about. And um, you know, to borrow a turn of phrase from a Mary Oliver poem, you know, what one might intend to do with one's wild and precious life. Welcome to Rice Leaders Radio. I'm your host, Leanne Mallory. As a leadership coach, I work inside organizations and I focus on helping leaders achieve their whole person potential and meaningfully contribute to their organization's mission. With this podcast, I share leadership best practices, developmental approaches, and stories of exemplary leaders. Today's episode with Rick Boren covers a lot of ground. Rick has a unique blend of intellect, heart, and spirit, and a way of bringing all of this forward that leaves his audience, and that includes me, contemplating the world in more complex and nuanced ways. Rick's work has taken him across the globe, and he's worked with executives from the Fortune 500 to mid-market CEOs and nonprofit leaders. He is chairman at Stegen Leadership Academy and also an adjunct professor at the Fuqua School of Business at Duke University. We talk about poetry and how to use poetry in leadership settings during this episode. I've created a guide and have linked to several of the resources that we mention in the episode, all in the show notes. Here we go. Hello, Rick. Hey, Leanne. How are you? I am fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me today. Sort of a last-minute request. No, I think uh, you and I have a good time anytime we're in conversation, <laughs> so I'll take the last-minute ones or the planned requests. Uh, thank you. Well, I want to set some context here. So a few episodes ago, I spoke with the CEO and the chief people officer of a mid-market company about how they were approaching conversations about race and equality within their organization. And one of the things that impressed me most about what they were doing was the fact that they didn't wait till they had a perfect solution. Yeah. Things were happening and they just went into action. And I began my internal creative process for how I wanted to design an episode around this. And of course, you kept coming to mind because I know that you include poetry a lot in your work with leaders. And in fact, I have not one, but probably several memories of you just standing up in front of a group of leaders and reciting a poem that came to your mind just from heart or from memory. I'm going to call Rick because I think this will be great because I think incorporating what you use or what you do in your work and me too would could be a really juicy conversation. And uh, I want to talk about you just for a bit and say, okay. I, uh, <laughs> so we're on Zoom. Yeah, I'm on, we're on Zoom and Rick is blushing a little bit. So uh, Rick is a Renaissance man. You're a musician, philosopher, teacher, business person, 
a computer science major and a dear friend for almost 30 years now. That's how long we've known each other. And so it feels really, really, really special to have you here. I'm wondering, we're going to talk about the poem, Start Close In. Can we just start by you reading it? Sure. Um, I, uh, I, think I, I, think I told you I could probably recite it, but um, when I'm put under, uh, under the pressure of performance, I might, I might botch it a little bit. So I will read it. If you don't mind, Leanne, because um, I think it might play into our conversation and especially the way that I use poetry, I'd like to read it somewhat in the uh, style in which um, David will typically recite poems, right? So there's a recitation that conveys something a little bit different depending on you know, an individual's capacity to listen, a little different than simply reading it. So I'd like to read it uh, more or less in the way that, that I can hear David reciting it um, in my own head. Okay? Perfect. Perfect. Start close in. Start close in. Don't take the second step or the third. Start with the first thing. Close in. The step you don't want to take. Start close in. Don't take the second step or the third. Start with the first thing. Close in. The step you don't want to take. Start with the ground you know. The pale ground beneath your feet your own way of starting the conversation. Start with your own question, with your own question. Give up on other people's questions. Don't let them smother something simple. To hear another's voice, follow your own voice. To hear another's voice, follow your own voice. Wait until that voice becomes a private ear listening to another. Start right now, right now. Take a small step. You can call your own. Don't follow someone else's heroics. Be humble and focused. Start close in. Don't mistake that other for your own. Start close in. Don't take the second step or the third. Start with the first thing. Close in the step you don't want to take. Thank you. I actually just closed my eyes a little bit and and listened to your interpretation in the way that you read it. So there was even an interpretation there at the beginning. Yeah, yeah exactly. So I want to now back out of the, the poem just for a moment. I'm curious about why and how you use poetry when you're working with leaders. So what, what is the value of bringing in poetry when you're working with some pretty type A personalities? Yeah, could I tell you maybe three really quick short stories that, um, that were likely the, the genesis um, and the subsequent nurturing and watering of this practice of the use of poetry for my own um, growth and development and for the work that I do with others. Absolutely. And the first poem wasn't, um, wasn't a great one, but it was shared with me years and years ago. Actually, it was a bit before you and I met. I, had, I, was, in, I was doing some counseling um, during a particularly tumultuous and challenging period of personal growth and development. And my um, therapist shared a poem with me. I don't even quite remember the exact name of the poem, but I think it was like self-growth 
in five verses. And the essence of it was, you know, I'm walking down a road, there's a hole in the road, I fall in, it's deep and dark, right? And then verse two is, as I'm walking down the same road, there's that hole, I fall in again, I figure out how to get out of it, you know? And by the last one, I'm walking down a different road. And um, the idea that, 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 that someone captured in poetry, the experience, the direct experience that I was having of just like, I kept making the same personal, professional mistake, like, over and over again. And I thought, like, I'm just not learning anything. And um, Roy was his name. Um, Roy shared that poem with me. Oh, there actually is a path here. And I can actually see that the hole that I'm in doesn't feel as dark as it did the very first time that I fell in it. Um, And I actually remember that I knew how to get out of it. Huh. Now that I look at it, there's a way to climb out of this. And I can can choose differently tomorrow. That was back in, I'm going to say, 1989. Fast forward just a little bit. When I was back in the day, I worked for um, Anderson Consulting and um, just about 93, I want to say 92, 93, lead partner at Anderson, a guy named George Shaheen, um, went off to Utah and sat in the mountaintop lodge with Stephen Covey and, you know, found the Covey religion and came back and unleashed it on um, all of Anderson's 78,000 employees. And I got to be a part of the first tranche of uh, leaders and um, facilitators to go through the training with Covey. And in that Covey program, the, um, the guy, Dave Gettleman was his name, led the program, um, used poetry extensively to highlight a, you know, something. A lot of his poems were um, snippets from the epics, like Homer's Odyssey, for example. But he used particular pieces of poem to highlight something. So an artistic, you might say, or a more um, abstract rendering of you know, what we might find as commonalities or everyday life. And, um, and it reinforced for me this idea that there are there are, there are ways of seeing things that transcend our everyday experience of reality, the black and white ways in which we see things and make sense of things. And if we had access to other ways of seeing, um, that we might also then have other ways of uh, making sense of meaning and therefore expanding our, our capacity to relate more fully with life. Right? And that was, you know, that's early 90s. And this is post, you know, extensive uh, counseling and therapy. So I was, I was still on a pretty... Um, a keen knife's edge there of my own learning and growth and development. So fast forward to uh, 2005, I was using, I was reading a lot of poetry um, through that time and starting to weave it in, but I was reading it um, and using it mostly as it was written. I was doing some work um, with the executive team at Ford and um, after Alan Maloney joined Ford from Boeing and um, he brought David White in for um, a senior executive meeting, like a poet. You know, I, I was tacitly familiar with David White at the time, like one of his poems, but not a lot. And um, David came in, and Alan introduced him as somebody that uh, you know helped them launch the Triple Seven with uh, with a poem. And but then went on to say that uh, David's philosophical approach to life and the way that he rendered his experience of life and the things that he could think about in poetry um, opened up vistas for him, him, Alan Mulally, that hadn't previously Mm. been available through business books or through the, um, uh, you know, the everyday corporate life or even the casual conversations that he had with others. Something came online for him in his conversations with David and in um, in the poetry. And David recited a poem that he had written for the 777 called Working Together. And um, I had an out-of-body experience, uh, the world of like, huh. There is so much more here. First of all, it doesn't hurt that he has a wonderful 
Irish lilt. Right. Uh, so, you know, just, that's wonderful to begin with to listen. But his repetitious, but not exactly repeating, his emphasis on certain words, the way that he used metaphor to convey something intangible that became tangible was, um, um, it was profound. It wasn't that I decided then and there that I would use poetry, but then and there I was changed by it. And I've used it ever since. I've probably recited that particular poem at least a thousand times in different settings because of its um, hmm. profundity of it, especially in the context of teams and how they work together. So I started, that's two, that, we'll call it 2004 or five. I don't remember the exact year, but it was in that time frame. It's been a part of everything, every program or every coaching relationship that I've had since. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I didn't know your story. And it makes me think of you know how I came to it as well. Mine was through when I was doing all of my, not just my coach certification, so I have two different coach certifications, but actually even before that in the mid-90s, when EDS was doing leadership transformation work and we were working with mm -hmm. Peter yeah. Kestenbaum and uh, Fred Kaufman and Peter Senge and kind of those folks. And Kestenbaum does as well, and he uses a lot of music. And then Fred Kaufman also uses uh, a lot of poetry and storytelling. And I'm looking down at um, the first thing from David White that I ever yeah. read, which was The Heart Aroused, another just yeah. fabulous leadership book. And when I went through my coach certification at Strozzi Institute with Richard Strozzi Heckler, someone asked him one time, um, someone asked him, how do you learn about the human condition? And he said, read good literature. And that yeah. uh, has just stuck with me. And obviously, you know, poetry yeah. is good literature. And I, it pulls me out of kind of an everyday linear mm -hmm. analytical way of thinking into being more uh, metaphorical and getting in touch with perspectives and way of ways of seeing something or relating to something that I would not typically yeah. engage in. And so it's, it's more, yeah. feels more whole brained. It's a broader perspective. It's art and beauty. And I find that that's kind of a universal experience. Yeah. Yeah, that, that makes a ton of sense to me. And I mean, what's coming up for me hearing that? Uh, well, first of all, it's like I'm, I'm grateful that, uh, that you and I connected in such a random way 30 years ago nearly. Um, and that we've managed to stay connected despite many times where oceans separated us, et cetera. And our journeys have been um, amazingly similar. And so just listening to you now with that and coming on to poetry through programs where you were yourself engaged in learning and development. I mean, you said something. I was just before you said this, I was, this thought rose in me. You said um, art and beauty. And I said, yeah, you know, the Greek notion of the good, the true, and the beautiful, right? Right. Which are different ways that human beings can relate to each other and relate to reality, right? The good is what you and I collectively determine to be good, right? So in relationship to each other, something out here, whether it's a moral or an ethical um, situation, or something that we care about, we can decide that that's good. And that's a, that's a function of you and I, or all of us in some kind of conversation where we've arrived at something where we um, intend to care about a shared or collective thing. And that would be the good. The true, in the, the, uh, the Greek Socratic Platonic sense, are the objective facts, 
My sense would be that in, in the business world, that we have so rewarded the ability to wrestle facts to the ground, the rational, logical, empirical mind, right? And the organizational mind where we just collectively decide on this is the next thing that we're going to do, that, that we've lost touch with beauty. Right? And so the, neither the good nor the true, in this sense for me, capture the essence of the heart. And while you didn't say this, listening to you, I could feel in my own self, my heart beating, oh, yeah, there it is. Right? That's what it feels like to be in a relationship. Right? That's what it feels like to listen to something that I care about or something that I care about and with someone that I care about. Right? So mm-hmm. the beautiful in the Greek sense was determined by first the creator, whether the creator was the gods or the creator was an author or an artist, etc. And then the way that I related with it, right? That the beauty was found inside of me. Beauty is in the eyes of the beholder. Right? Mm-hmm. So the beauty is about finding the relational quality in me to the content of the world around me. I mean, relating to it not strictly or merely in a rational way, but feeling it, right? The feeling that the emotional tonal quality of it. So good literature, good art evokes something from us. It evokes an emotional response that we then have to try to make some kind of semi-rational sense of. Um, and that's where I think the, the nexus or the intersection here for me of poetry and work in the world is it evokes something deep in us that we wouldn't otherwise have easy access to through facts alone. Yeah, it's very perspective expanding. And I'm just uh, remembering now I did an interview a few months back with a woman, uh, Bonnie Pittman. She was once the director of the Dallas Museum of Art. Yeah. And she has a couple of programs now, and she actually takes physicians into art museums to help them with their observation skills mm. through observing art. Yeah. It enhances how they are with patients, what they're able to see um, in a whole person yeah. rather than just uh, a diagnosis or a disease. And so there are just so many uses for art yeah. and, and beauty. Yeah. So when you are using, I, I know a lot of times you just uh, spontaneously break out into a poem. Do you ever have a way of walking people through introducing yeah. a piece of poetry and then walking them through how they can relate to it yeah. or reflect on it in, in meaningful ways? Um, would you share that? Sure. Um, I, and this is totally co-opted from David White's work. And I could be, and I have been uh, at times in some of our programs, been accused of being a, a fanboy. But it's, <laughs> but it's not just David White. It's uh, one of my favorite singer-songwriters. And now we're going to get into the world of David's a guy named David Wilcox. And the thing that they share is that they use metaphor to convey some aspect of their experience with living and being in the world. And they're storytellers. So David will often tell a story, recite the poem, and tell another story. David Wilcox will often tell a story about what he's working with in life. Because he would say the story, the songs that he sings are really for himself, right? And he's, he's not trying to preach anything. He's actually trying to talk to himself. So he'll tell the story about what's up for him. He'll sing the song. And then he'll come back and say, you know, right while he's still playing the song before he sings the final chorus again. He'll say, oh, yeah, it's a little bit like this and it's a little bit like that. So what he's doing, the way that I would come to understand what both of them are doing is they're offering entry points or handholds for how to relate to it. In other words, 
you could relate to it just as it is. Or you could say, how does this relate to me? How does this relate to life? Or what's coming up for me? Right? And this ties very closely with the uh, Jewish and the Christian sense of reading sacred texts. Right? How do you relate to something that's, that's potentially conveying or has the potential to convey deep meaning to you? First approximation are just the facts. Black and white, what are the sounds? Second approximation is what's coming up. Like, what do I notice arising in me as a result of it? The third one is going to be, what is it in me that, that, that shows up now as some sense of meaning as a result of those things? And then the fourth sense, or the moving on sense, is what do I now want to do with that? Mm-hmm. Right. If you'll indulge me. I want to, I want to add yeah, something sure. a little bit to that very, the very first okay. Um you said the first approximation is just kind of the black and white, the scripture, the words, yeah. et cetera. And as I was reviewing, well, how do I do it? Uh-huh. You know, how, how do I go through this? Um, the first part for me too, the first step is I would say, you know, even observation, yep. which is basically what you're saying. Yep. And I realized that as I started thinking about this poem from more the fact, you know, observable uh, standpoint, that it, that I remembered, okay, it's uh, it was written by David White, yep. a Welsh man, a you know, in this period of time, it's this long. It this particular poem has a a visual structure to it, yeah, that's very narrow, you mm-hmm. know, so it's kind of it's a short poem, but even the structure looks like starting close in, yeah. Like yeah, he, he yeah. so even that, and then he uses the word start six times. Mm-hmm. So even just looking at truly, like you said, the the black and white, what's very observable, me remembering like who who wrote it, mm-hmm. and oh, and the fact that he's a nature lover and that he was a guide in the Galapagos, and so he comes with a particular perspective. And yeah. so, even bringing those facts or the context about him yeah. into the poem reminded me from where he might have been writing. Mm-hmm. And so, even something that can feel really dry, like step one observation or black and white approximation, can be really juicy. Like you, you start looking at scripture. Well, when was it written and who wrote it and what was going on at that time? So, you like Walt Whitman. He was a nurse in the uh, Civil War. Mm-hmm. And once you start thinking about all the uh, the facts or the context of the people, then for me, the poem starts taking on a new meaning because you go, you know that person's perspective or for part of it. Yeah. So in the Jewish and Christian faiths, a structure, a prescribed structure um, for engaging with sacred texts if you generalize this idea of you know going from sacred text to just going with reality, and then you now specialize it again back to poetry, it still holds as far as I can tell. But they both share this first this first step in, in the Christian um, lectio divina. It's lectio. It is what are the, what's the text? It's in some sense what's the black and white of the text. In the Jewish tradition, I'm less familiar with this, and we'll, we'll probably butcher the the pronunciations of it. But the contents of the thing is peshat or service surface, right? So what's the text or what's the surface? You can just like, what is being presented to me right now, which would include other facts if I'm if they're known, right? If they're not known, I may have to go in search of those. And the second step is in the Lectio Divina is meditatio, meditate on, which brings context in, right? 
in the Jewish sense, it's remez, right? Which is mm. also the deep allegorical meaning of it. So you go from surface to the meditation of context and meaning. Right? And what you're describing there is almost perfectly that, that you know, kind of two-step process where they're relating to each other. They don't happen, they don't happen sequentially. Mm, if we, if okay. we really engage something, whether it's a poem or a, a piece of art or a piece of literature or something that's happening on a screen in front of us in a movie, first approximation is just the way the, the information lands in our senses. And then what starts to show up as we relate with that, that happens like in a back and forth conversation um, continually. Yeah, it's very iterative and associative for me. Yeah. It's like it just kind yeah. of keeps on looping through and I gather more meaning the more I reflect on it. Or yeah. it takes on a different meaning uh, depending on where I am in life as well. Yes, yeah. We started this you know, conversation with how to use this as leaders and, and why. And, and here's what I would uh, say from my own experience of my life and then relating with those that I've served you know, for the, you know, the better part of the last 20 plus years. In my own life, most of what happened around me, whether it was poetry or art, or everyday life, or even human relationships were all, at best, surface manifestations in my experience. I took the facts in, I understood what the facts were, and I moved on. It was like, how do I get on to the next thing? It was very little deep consideration of how life was arising in me right now, what was showing up in my, my world as a result of being in relationship to anything in front of me or around me. I didn't pause. I just simply didn't pause. Mm. I didn't take it in. And because of that, not surprisingly, the experience that the vast majority of folks around me had of me was being aloof, standoffish, distant, non-relational, hmm. which was probably true. It didn't feel true to me, but it was probably true. I can imagine uh, transactional as well. Yeah. That, that yeah. word uh, comes up for me as well. Right. So, you know, no, no sense of the hmm. other in me and no sense that the other had that I cared. You know, that was part of the emotional, you know, turmoil that I had to go through in my um, late 20s and early 30s to, to wake up to, to the relational quality of life. And this played a big, big role in it. So mm -hmm. I, I think what we're, you know, this territory that we're in here and, and why I care about this is as I think that poetry or good literature offers, uh, is an invitation, an invitation into a, a deeper relationship with life, a, a deeper reflection on the meaning of one's life, on what one is caring about, and um, you know, to borrow a turn of phrase from a Mary Oliver poem, you know, what one might intend to do with one's wild and precious life. Mm. And as I, the other thing that happens for me with poetry more than anything else is that I find words or descriptions of emotions that I'm feeling that I wasn't able to name. Yeah. That is a huge value for me. And I have so much uh, admiration for poets and, and writers who are able to, you know, they're spending the time kind of mining the depths. I can just yeah. imagine myself saying, is it this word, this metaphor? No, what yeah. is it? And so yeah. just the fact that someone else has taken the time to do that Mm -hmm. makes my inner life more accessible to me. Indeed. And it gives me a, a different way of interpreting. And this poem right here, Start Close In, as a matter of fact, it will come up for me a lot when I'm feeling 
challenged. Like if I, there's a big project or big something ahead of me that I'm, I haven't broken it down or I'm seeing it as like they say, the big elephant. I make it bigger than it needs to be. And, and interestingly, I was doing some research on this yesterday and I came across something that Parker Palmer said about this poem. And he said, when I try to start big, it's probably because I'm seeking an excuse to get out of doing anything. The big stuff is beyond my reach, at least at the moment. But if I start close in, I'll find things I can do right now. Yeah. And this is, you know, inspiration from a poem that has everyday life implications. Yeah. And, uh, the interesting thing with really good poems, and by really good poems, I mean ones that have been thoughtfully constructed from the deep well of experience and creativity and the heart and mind of the, the poet, is, is that they, in my experience directly, they have the capacity to, to transmit something different through time. And that it's, there's a context in which we read it. You talked about the context in which mm-hmm. David Blight is even writing it. There's a context in which we read something and and relate with something like this. And as our context changes, the meaning that shows up for us changes. So for example, this start close in, it's it's fascinating that when you reached out to me for this conversation that you led with us, because it's been one that's been forefront for me in a variety of conversations. And largely I'm in this conversation around the big challenges that we kind of are in the middle of, because there are a bunch of them. Uh, one of them that is most directly beyond COVID is, you know, obviously what's going on with um, race relations, you know, globally, but in America in particular, and um, the sense that leaders are completely overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. The same way starting a big project, overwhelmed. One of the things that David does in this program is he says, start close in, take the first thing, start with the first thing, that thing that you really don't want to take, right? It is don't try to boil the ocean. Start right here and just mm-hmm. take one step in the direction that feels a little bit unsafe for you to take, but you know that it's the step you have to take, right? How do you know? You start close in. The one you don't want to take, the conversation that you don't want to have, the door that you don't want to open, start there and be humble. Don't use other people's questions. You have your own questions. Mm-hmm. Start with what you're afraid of, what concerns you, what you're caring about. Start right there. So this admonition to just start where you are, you don't have to fix this great big thing called race relations. You do have to work with where your own heart and mind have been closed right? and open up to the questions that life are giving. So, so in my world, in my context, this is how this is showing up mm-hmm. right now in conversation. Right. And that's exactly the same context of when it popped into my mind. It's like, yeah. you know, because I've also been in these conversations where people just don't know how to get started. And yeah. they go way down to uh, what are the policies and procedures and, uh, you know, what are we going to do about it? Don't think about that. Just, yeah. just start right now with what's on your mind, what's on the minds of the people who you care about, who work in yeah. your organization, and just start there. You don't yeah. have to have it figured out. I'm, I'm pausing here to see if there is anything else that I that I want to say. One thing that I do want to say right now is that I'll take some notes from our conversation here and put those in a document and put them on the website. So my intent is for someone who maybe doesn't 
read poetry a lot or someone who's in a position of, of, of introducing poetry to others to have some almost cheat sheet. So here's just some, Mm -hmm. some ways to do this. And so I had some things written down. You've got some things here and I'll combine those and provide a, a guide. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Thank you. I I hope that, um, you know, someone finds something that you and I have said, I'm here, um, interesting or opening for them that they can take their own first step that they can, they can start. Right. Thank you, David. Right. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you have a beautiful rest of your day. Thank you. And it's lovely how we keep looping through different forms of our relationship. And thank you for being here and, and supporting me and the, the podcast and anybody out there who's listening. Delighted, uh, delighted to be in your um, circle of influence and care. And thank you. <laughs> All right. <laughs> thank you. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Rise Leaders Radio on your preferred podcast platform. Your ratings, reviews, and shares are also really appreciated. You can also visit rise-leaders.com for all the resources we talked about today and to work with me if you're committed to making your unique and positive impact. Thank you for listening and remember, elevate your part of the world.